The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Our text for our sermon is Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Yes, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant of mine, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or each one teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their guilt, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the word of our Lord. Jeremiah had a ministry I do not envy. He was sent to tell the last generation, God has had enough of every generation breaking the covenant. I should have lifted my hand of protection with every generation. But you're the last. This is it. The Babylonians are coming. And Jeremiah was sent out to tell the people to repent, but God had let him know they won't repent. This would be a very frustrating and seem like a futile ministry, but some of the greatest prophecies of the coming Savior and salvation come from Jeremiah. Today is one of those prophecies as Jeremiah talks about the new covenant. You've probably already figured out by the words of forgiveness that the new covenant is salvation in Christ. But a lot of people get confused between the old covenant and the new covenant, and they think that salvation in Christ means Jesus cleared out the hard stuff, made a friendlier, little easier covenant for us that is still keeping the law. And so today we'll ask the question, what is the new covenant? And using today's text, we're going to see where it's different than the old covenant. I will be preaching on my own translation of the Hebrew language, although it's very clunky, because there are some uh, word pictures there that I want to bring out. What is the new covenant? Our text begins, a declaration of the Lord, pay close attention. Now, let's just stop there. God is saying a lot here. A declaration from the Lord. Whenever God talks, he never lies. But God is saying, I solemnly swear to you. And then he says the great Hebrew word, hine. The King James Version used to, pray, used to translate that, behold. But that, that word has fallen out of the English language. So the closest we have to that is pay close attention or listen up. God here is saying, pay very close attention. I am making a solemn oath to you. Days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You see, that's pretty much all that's left is the house of Judah. The Assyrians had hauled off almost all the other tribes 150 years earlier when God got tired of their worship there uh, that had been that had calves that they followed and, and they chased after Baal all the time. And all that was really left was Judah, where the capital city of Jerusalem was. But for all those who remain faithful, even those who'd been hauled off into exile from the other tribes, God is saying, here's a new covenant. He says, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand in order to lead them out of the land of Egypt, which they on their part broke my covenant. I've often taken children backpacking 
Well, we got to cross rivers over logs and things like that. And since I am the adult, I will cross the river with all of my gear and everything. And then I will reach out with my hand on the log. If one of us falls into the water, it's going to be me. And with my strong arm, and I've had kids fall off of the log where my arm was able to hold them and keep them from getting wet. God did all the work in taking that first generation out of Egypt. God took care of Pharaoh and his army. And when he led them to Mount Sinai, they made the old covenant. The old covenant was civil, ceremonial, and moral laws. It was a two-sided covenant. If they kept their end of the deal, then God's end of the deal was he would keep them and protect them and he would win the battles for them. And when they were settled in, if they continued to keep the covenant, he would keep foreign invaders out and he would send lots of rain so that this land would be blessed. The imagery he used is it would flow with milk and honey. And so they had to keep their end of a two-sided contract. And when they did, they got lots of blessings from God. That was the old covenant, a covenant in which they kept civil, ceremonial, and moral laws. And by doing so, they got blessings. But the new covenant was something different. See, the old covenant that included the moral law had such blessings as the commandment, Honor your mother and father that it may go well with you and you may live long upon the land. Even that was specifically pointing to the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul applies that now to the whole world that you may live long upon the earth. God was talking to Israel, even with those Ten Commandments, although the moral law is written in our hearts. And following them to a person meant blessings for the entire nation. But the new covenant is different. God still takes us by the hand. In fact, God does all the work. In fact, God blesses us first. See, the good news of salvation in Christ demands that we believe in it. So he sends the Holy Spirit so that we are brought to faith in it. Then with that faith, we are connected to Christ. So we get his blood. Our sins are washed away and God continues to keep us in it. He's given us a new man. The Holy Spirit gave birth to that new person in us so that we constantly cannot help but to want to come to the word, which constantly strengthens and nourishes us. So what is the new covenant? It's not a covenant that when follows gives blessings, but a covenant that gives blessings so that we follow it. Different is night and day. He continues, and we already read part of that in verse 32, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand in order to lead them out of the land of Egypt, which they on their part broke my covenant, yet I on my part was a husband with regard to them. A declaration of the Lord. This is pretty clunky language here, but it really is spelling out something. As a pastor, I have done more than my fair share of marriage counseling. And oftentimes, usually what happens is, yes, one spouse starts it. There's something, they get a, they, they, something that's eating at them and it starts driving them nuts about the other spouse. But then as the saying goes, it takes two to tango. The other spouse turns around and says, I'm getting tired of you treating me with contempt and starts treating them with anger or frustration and pretty soon they're tangoing. But with this language, God is really spelling out, I was faithful. 
I was a good spouse. There is no fault on my end. And as human beings, we're always sinners. So in a marriage, we always have to say, well, yeah, I have at least some blame. Maybe sometimes we have the bulk of the blame. But God says, you can't even lay one ounce of blame on me. I was a faithful spouse. I did everything. I loved them and embraced them. But you cheated on me. The imagery that scripture in the Old and New Testament gives of us in our natural condition is being like a prostitute who has become a prostitute because she or he is addicted to drugs. In other words, as soon as they dry up and need the next hit, they are running out to prostitution. You and I have the tendency to do this with things of this world like money. Oh, if I had more money, it'll solve my problems. So we ignore God and let money have the place in our heart. The people of Israel would chase after false gods like Baal wanting the rain that God had withheld because they had stopped being faithful to him in the first place. You and I, like Israel, are, are, cannot be faithful in and of ourselves. In fact, that's one of the lessons when you read the Old Testament. Generation after generation, you go, why couldn't these people remain faithful? It couldn't be that hard. What we see externally with them happens in our heart the moment we give anything first place or equal place to God. But while we were addicted to the drugs of this world, to the devil's lies, Jesus came along, he picked us up out of the gutter, he washed us clean in his own blood. He connected us to himself so that that new person that his Holy Spirit creates so that we're connected to him now no longer has the drug addiction and the need for it. We have his love flowing through us as he washes us clean and puts the wedding dress of his righteousness on him. The old covenant was a two-sided covenant. It was a marriage that required faithfulness on both parts. Not, and so that was a covenant of an unfaithful spouse because Israel never remained faithful. But the new covenant, salvation in Christ, again, the blessing comes first. Christ makes us faithful. And then we are able to see a loving God who is always at work for us, always working for our best. What is the new covenant? Not a covenant to an unfaithful spouse, but a covenant that makes us faithful so that we have a faithful marriage. Our text continues in verse 33. Because this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, a declaration of the Lord. I will have given my instruction in their innermost being, and I will write it upon their heart. And so I will be God for them, and they on their part will be a people for me. Now, English originally translated the Hebrew word here, Torah, as law. And when we hear that, we think the moral law, Ten Commandments. And that's not wrong. It's just that it's not just God's Ten Commandments. It's not just God's civil, ceremonial, and moral laws that were meant for the nation of Israel until Christ came, pointing ahead to Christ. It is all of God's instruction. For example, as Jesus said to the disciples who were believers, and he says to you and I, go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to obey 
everything, not just some, not just pick and choose, everything I've commanded you. It's instruction that tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, the old covenant was external regulation. It, and that's the law works on the outside. And so you could have Pharisees who would say things like, I have never cheated on my wife looked at other women lustfully. That doesn't count because I've only externally, ne I've never externally done that. Nobody can read my heart. I have never had other gods. I've never worshiped other gods, although I have let money be God in my heart. See, the old regulation, the civil, ceremonial, and moral law was external. Jesus even makes that clear when he tells us, if you think the thought it's a sin on the Sermon on the Mount, but the people then would get confused because they would think that like if they brought a sacrifice to the temple, the external regulation took care of the problem, their sin was gone. And they could easily miss that that was giving them the message, one innocent must give their life in your place and was really pointing ahead to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But see, the gospel is something totally different. By putting his instruction in our heart, he's given us the new man, that begins with knowing I have sinned, but I have been forgiven. I am a child of God. And so it creates an internal change in us. We no longer have to sit down and say, you have to go on the Sabbath day to the temple. You have to make these sacrifices and those sacrifices. God has sent somebody to us who has preached the word and he's given us the new person and that new person cannot help, wants to, loves the word of God when it's taught in its truth and purity and comes to it and is nourished. So this is not an external regulation, but an internal change. It changes our heart by giving us the new person. And so he continues... And a man will not keep on teaching his neighbor or a man his brother by saying, keep on knowing the Lord, because all of them from the least to the greatest will keep on knowing me, a declaration of the Lord. This is a further elaboration on verse 33, but what's very interesting here is the word God uses for knowledge is an experiential knowledge. It's one thing if I tell you how to change the tire on your car. It's another thing if I stand over your shoulder and have you do it and say, now, make sure those lug nuts are tight. Make sure you tighten them in a star pattern or else that wheel will get loose. Now you have the knowledge because you've actually done it and experiential knowledge. The Hebrew word used for knowledge here is the Hebrew word that softens when a husband and wife have intercourse together because they know each other in a way that God designed to be quite a blessing, although God is not being sexual here at all. This is a very intimate experiential knowledge. It used to be you sat down and you had with your neighbor and you went through the external regulations and you memorized them. But you now have a deeply personal knowledge of God because you are connected by the mystical union of all believers to Christ so that he produces good fruit through you. The external regulation was somebody standing over your shoulder saying, now that would be violating the Sabbath day. Now, now that would be coveting your neighbor's ox. The gospel is the good news of God putting his love in your heart. Galatians chapter 3 verses 22 through 29 give a really good example of this. 
A chaperone in the Greek and Roman Empire was often even a slave, but if not a slave, somebody who hired that was highly educated. And they were like today's modern life coach. They followed little Billy to school and they said, gee, Billy, don't you think you're hanging around with the wrong crowd? Gee, Billy, don't you think it would be foolish of you to stick that, that, electrical, that fork in that electrical socket? So that's what a chaperone did. And the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 22 through 29, but scripture imprisoned all things under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ would be given to those who believe. But before this faith came, we were held in custody under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. So the law was our chaperone until Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a chaperone. In fact, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Indeed, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is not Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one and the same in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. The law was a chaperone. Make sure you are behaving this way and even the Gentile nations around you will see what holiness is. But the good news of salvation in Christ has given us a new man who is connected to Christ. We do not want to violate his word. We do not want to act against his word. We do not want to have something equal or above God in our hearts. It's built into our new man. We do not want to hear God's word taught falsely. We want it to be taught in its truth and purity. And so we have gone from being, shall we say, little kids who needed a chaperone, life coach, babysitter, whatever term you choose, to being spiritually mature adults because our God has become man and adopted us so that he's our brother, so that God is our father, so that the Holy Spirit has made a new man that lives in our heart. This is not a chaperone, but a spiritual maturity that no longer needs the babysitter, but acts simply because it's an adult and God has given us the faith. Our text concludes in verse 34, because I will keep on forgiving there. And the word in Hebrew used here for sin is really a perversion or a twisting of God's will. And I won't remember their sin again. Now, the best way to translate that word would be perversion. But in English anymore, we just think pervert, sexual sins. It's actually when we take God's will and we twist it to fit the will of our sinful nature. So a simple example would be in the days when we used cash before COVID-19. You paid cash and somebody gave you a couple extra bucks because they made a mistake in counting up the change. And you would think, oh, that's their own fault. They should have been more careful. But God says, thou shalt not steal. So we would be twisting his will so that we could keep the money. Now, we do that all the time. You, I, every human being, that's one of the great ways in which we sin against God is we twist his wheel so that we can get our way. And it really is making ourselves above God, even if we don't realize it. Now, in the Old Testament, when you violated God's law, there were all these regulations that you went to the temple and be cleansed. And oftentimes it happened as God even complained in the New Testament, pointing out the people being unfaithful spouses. Okay, I've committed this sin. I'm unclean. So I've got to give this animal as a sacrifice that points ahead to Christ. Hmm. That animal there is not going to be alive in a couple of months. Boy, it's gimpy. You can tell it's got cancer. That's the one I'll take to, to, to give so that I could be cleansed uh, from my sin. 
See the problem there? The people got hung up and just thought it was the external regulations. And the Pharisees thought that as well. This was not a purity by going through the motions, just simply the external uh, mechanics of the whole thing. And this was one of the things that crept into the medieval church that Martin Luther tried to fix. For example, the Lord's Supper, which was perverted into what was called the Mass. It was spoken in Latin and the lay people didn't even know what was being said. They were withheld the cup because they didn't want to spill the blood of Christ because of these ideas they had that the bread and wine become only body and blood of Christ. That's not how Christ said it in the institution. It it remains bread and wine and body and blood. But anyways... And then there was all this, because they didn't understand what was going on, the, the, the medieval church used the term ex opera operati. If you were there and just went through the motions, you received the bread, even if you didn't have a clue what was going on, because you were there going through the motions, God gave you forgiveness. But that's not the case at all. God must put a new person in us and wash us clean. The minute it's you're going through the motions, then your forgiveness depends on something you do. Oh, and we can be guilty of that ex opera operati today without even realizing it. And I'm going to get into a little bit here in this coming Wednesday sermon. But when it comes to our worship of the Lord, we see that there are people who want to scrap everything and start over. And in doing so, they can miss an order. They can miss something that makes sure that the good news of salvation in Christ is present, even when the pastor is having a bad day, the preacher. But there are others who run to the opposite extreme and they make it seem like if you cross yourselves enough times, if you stand up and sit down enough times, then you'll be forgiven and don't even realize they're teaching that you're going through the motions and they're making a ceremony uh, that that, that, uh, make it seem like their forgiveness depends on. But see, that's not the new covenant. It's not a purity by going through the motions. It's God's purity. I will take care of your sin and I will never remember it again. I will wash it away. And so we see it's not a purity by going through the motions, but God's purity. God making us holy. God forgiving us. God washing us clean. And so as Jeremiah points out to an unfaithful people, The old covenant never was meant to save them, but God is giving a new covenant that's going to take care of everything. We've asked, what is the new covenant? And I've said it's the good news of salvation in Christ. But that is not Christ cleared the hard parts out of the law so that you can keep the law. It's God does all the work. And so we've seen in this text, not a covenant that when follows gives blessings, but a covenant that gives blessings so that we follow. God does all the work. Not a covenant to an unfaithful spouse, but a covenant in which you are made a faithful spouse so that you have the blessing of a faithful marriage to God. Not an external regulation, but an internal change. God putting a new man in your heart that is connected to Christ by the Holy Spirit giving birth to that person. Not a chaperone, life coach, or babysitter for a child, infant, immature person, but a spiritual maturity giving you that new man connected to Christ. Not a purity by going through the motions, but God's purity. God has put a new person in your heart and connected that person to Christ as a branch to the vine so that you are God's redeemed child. And that is the new covenant. Amen. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless in the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all time, both now and forevermore. Amen.